Chapter 3 of the Communist Manifesto Socialist and Communist Literature Marx saw little of intrinsic value in the liberal revolutions against the monarchies of Europe in 1848 when the manifesto was published but accepted them as the march of history. Here there is analysis on socialism. Three kinds of socialism are mentioned. A. Feudal Socialism Owing to their historical position, it became the vocation of the aristocracies of France and England to write pamphlets against modern bourgeois society. In the French Revolution of July 1830 and in the English Reform Agitation, these aristocracies again succumbed to the hateful upstart. Thenceforth, a serious political contest was altogether out of the question. A literary battle alone remained possible. But even in the domain of literature, the old cries of the Restoration period had become impossible. In order to arouse sympathy, the aristocracy were obliged to lose sight, apparently, of their own interests, and to formulate their indictment against the bourgeoisie in the interest of the exploited working class alone. Thus, the aristocracy took their revenge by singing lampoons on their new master and whispering in his ears sinister prophecies of coming catastrophe. In this way arose feudal socialism, half lamentation, half lapoon, half echo of the past, half menace of the future at times by its bitter, witty, and incisive criticism striking the bourgeoisie to the very heart's core, but always ludicrous in its effect through total incapacity to comprehend the march of modern history. The aristocracy, in order to rally the people to them, waved the proletarian arms bag in front for a banner, but the people, so often as it joined them, saw on their hind quarters the old feudal coat of arms and deserted with loud and irreverent laughter. This section continues in the same vein, tendentious in its indulgence of sweeping generalizations parading as empirical evidence b. Petty bourgeois socialism related in full. The feudal aristocracy was not the only class that was ruined by the bourgeoisie, not the only class whose conditions of existence pined and perished in the atmosphere of modern bourgeois society. The medieval burgesses and the small peasant proprietors were the precursors of the modern bourgeoisie. In those countries which are but little developed, industrially and commercially, these two classes still vegetate side by side with the rising bourgeoisie. 
In countries where modern civilization has become fully developed, a new class of petty bourgeoisie has been formed, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie and ever renewing itself as a supplementary part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition and as modern industry develops. They even see the moment approaching when they will completely disappear as an independent section of modern society to be replaced in manufactures agriculture and commerce by overlookers, bailiffs and shopmen. In countries like France, where the peasants constitute far more than half of the population, it was natural that writers who sided with the proletariat against the bourgeoisie should use, in their criticism of the bourgeois regime, the standard of the peasant and petty bourgeois, and from the standpoint of these intermediate classes, should take up the cudgels for the working class. Thus arose petty bourgeois socialism. Sismondi was the head of this school, not only in France, but also in England. This school of socialism dissected with great acuteness the contradictions in the conditions of modern production. It lay bare the hypocritical apologies of economists. It proved incontrovertibly the disastrous effects of machinery and division of labor, the concentration of capital and land in a few hands, overproduction and crisis, it pointed out the inevitable ruin of the petty bourgeois and peasant, the misery of the proletariat, the anarchy in production, the crying inequalities in the distribution of wealth, the industrial war of extermination between nations, the dissolution of old moral bonds, of the old family relations, of the old nationalities. In its positive aims, however, this form of socialism aspires either to restoring the old means of production and of exchange, and with them the old property relations and the old society, or to cramping the modern means of production and of exchange within the framework of the old property relations that have been and were bound to be exploited by those means. In either case, it is both reactionary and utopian. Its last words are corporate guilds for manufacture, patriarchal relations in agriculture. Ultimately, when stubborn historical facts had dispersed all intoxicating effects of self-deception, this form of socialism ended in a miserable fit of the blues. C. German or true socialism. Note the quotation marks. True socialism. The socialist and communist literature of France 
a literature that originated under the pressure of a bourgeoisie in power and that was the expression of the struggle against this power was introduced into Germany at a time when the bourgeoisie in that country had just begun its contest with feudal absolutism. German philosophers would be philosophers and beau esprit eagerly seized on this literature, only forgetting that when these writers immigrated from France into Germany, French social conditions had not immigrated along with them. In contact with German social conditions, this French literature lost all its immediate practical significance and assumed a purely literary aspect. Thus, to the German philosophers of the 18th century, the demands of the First French Revolution were nothing more than the demands of practical reason in general, and the utterance of the will of the revolutionary French bourgeoisie signalled in their eyes the law of pure will, of will as it was bound to be, of true human will generally. The world of the German literate consisted solely in bringing the new French ideas into harmony with their ancient philosophical conscience, or rather in annexing the French ideas without deserting their own philosophic point of view. This example is extended in a later paragraph. It is well known how the monks wrote silly lives of Catholic saints over the manuscripts on which the classical works of ancient heathendom had been written. The German literate reversed this process with the profane French literature. They wrote their philosophical nonsense beneath the French original, for instance, beneath the French criticism of the economic functions of money, they wrote alienation of humanity, and beneath the French criticism of the bourgeois state, they wrote dethronement of the category of the general, and so forth. This section concludes thus. By this, the long-wished-for opportunity was offered to true socialism of confronting the political movement with the socialist demands of hurling the traditional anathemas against liberalism, against representative government, against bourgeois competition, bourgeois freedom of the press, bourgeois legislation, bourgeois liberty and equality, and of preaching to the masses that they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by this bourgeois movement. German socialism forgot in the nick of time that the French criticism, whose silly echo it was, 
presupposed the existence of modern bourgeois society with its corresponding economic conditions of existence and the political constitution adapted thereto the very things whose attainment was the object of the pending struggle in germany to the absolute governments, with their following of parsons, professors, country squires, and officials, it served as a welcome scarecrow against the threatening bourgeoisie. It was a sweet finish after the bitter pills of floggings and bullets with which these same governments just at that time dosed the German working-class risings. While this true socialism thus served the governments as a weapon for fighting the German bourgeoisie, it at the same time directly represented a reactionary interest, the interest of the German Philistines. In Germany, the petty bourgeois class, a relic of the 16th century, and since then constantly cropping up again, is the real social basis of the existing state of things. To preserve this class is to preserve the existing state of things in Germany. The industrial and political supremacy of the bourgeoisie threatens it with certain destruction. On the one hand, from the concentration of capital, on the other, from the rise of the revolutionary proletariat. True socialism appeared to kill these two birds with one stone. It spread like an epidemic. The robe of speculative cobwebs, embroidered with flowers of rhetoric, steeped in the dew of sickly sentiment, this transcendental robe in which the German socialists wrapped their sorry eternal truths, all skin and bone, served to wonderfully increase the sale of their goods amongst such a public. And on its part, German socialism recognized more and more its own calling as the bombastic representative of the petty bourgeois philistine it proclaimed the german nation to be the model nation and the german petty philistine to be the typical man to every villainous meanness of this model man it gave a hidden higher socialistic interpretation the exact contrary of its real character it went to the extreme length of directly opposing the brutally destructive tendency of communism and of proclaiming its supreme and partial contempt of all class struggles with very few exceptions, all the so-called socialist and communist publications that now, 1847, circulate in Germany, belong to the domain of this foul and enervating literature.